Canucks Central Thursday. Dan Riccio with you. Satyar Shah getting a maintenance day. A deserved maintenance day, okay? There's like very few harder working people in this town than Satyar Shah. Looking good on the panel with uh, Murph last night. Taking the day off today. He'll be back tomorrow for a big mailbag Friday here on Canuck Central. We are presented by your local Grip Auto entire location. Friendly service and expert advice are waiting for you at gripauto.ca today. Busy show. We've got uh, Chris Faber joining us in a, a couple of minutes. We'll talk Canucks and Abby Canucks. Shana Goldman will join us. Her take on the Hart Trophy race and other goings-on around the National Hockey League. Greg Wyshynski. After 5 o'clock, we'll get set up for the Washington Capitals to visit town tomorrow. And uh, it's Thursday, so you know Cheech will be joining us after 6 o'clock. Another big win for the Vancouver Canucks last night. A couple of things that (laughs) came up. I kind of got ratioed towards the end of last night's game when I tweeted, Pedersen was easily the Canucks' best player tonight. Now, I don't know if it was a ratio, but I did have quite a few replies. And many just saying, uh, did you forget about number nine? Uh, did you not see the box score with JT Miller having four points? Uh, of course I did. So all of those things. Maybe I was a little bit uh, strong in saying Pedersen was easily the Canucks better, best player last night. But I saw a version of Elias Pettersson that basically looked near unplayable for his opponents. From the puck drop in the first period, his forecheck was just absolutely relentless. The burst in his stride was far better than anything we saw in the early part of the season. How good he was on the penalty kill, consistently pressuring the puck. Of course, he scores the power play goal. And then closing out the game. Felt like Boudreaux wouldn't take him off the ice at the end of the game because of how Pedersen was going. And the numbers back it up. He was flat-out dominant last night. And you saw it almost contagiously into his line mates, especially Nils Hoaglander, who had an exceptional night. And I know it's the Montreal Canadiens, but we talked about this Earlier in the week, the way Elias Pettersson gets back to being a top 20 center in the league or in that conversation as he was after the bubble playoffs is that he starts playing in big minutes, big opponents, taking the team's, the opposition's best line away. Those types of things start to happen again. And you're starting to see it. You're starting to see Bruce Boudreaux trust Pettersson in really big moments. And I think that was very encouraging how he played last night. And we'll see how he does against a much tougher opponent. Now, that being said, maybe I did uh, bury the lead with that because JT Miller has been one of the best players in the National Hockey League all season long. And if you filter through, I know we've talked about like, hey, who's been really good under Bruce Boudreaux and... Brock Besser's got all these goals under Boudreaux and Pedersen's finally come alive and these other things have happened. Great. 
J.T. Miller, since Bruce Boudreaux took over as coach of the Vancouver Canucks, is sixth in league scoring. Five players have scored more points than J.T. Miller since December 6th. Sidney Crosby, Johnny Gaudreau, Miko Rantanen, Jonathan Huberdeau, and Austin Matthews. The majority of those players have played more games than J.T. Miller. Outside of Gaudreau and Matthews, they've all played more than J.T. Miller. He's been an absolute freak with his production. Gotten to a Super Saiyan-type level that I don't think any of us really saw in J.T. Miller. He's having one of the best seasons a Vancouver Canuck forward has ever had, and certainly the best since the Sedins, as many have pointed out over the last 24 hours. And it really makes the conversation around J.T. Miller that much more fascinating. My takeaway is, after last night, there is no way you can trade J.T. Miller before the trade deadline. I think it's just a ridiculous notion at this point to think about moving that player outside of the type of trade offer that is just unrealistic. That probably no team would be willing to give at this point. If you lose three in a row, I don't care. I don't trade JT Miller right now unless I get an absolute king's ransom because of how much he means to this team right now. 650-650 on the Dunbar Lumber text line. You can always get in on the conversation there. Let's welcome in Chris Faber, the Canucks warm-up here on Sportsnet 650 and Canucks Army, uh, of course. What's up, Faber? Doing good. Coming off of producing a little bit there. Uh, ready to rock and roll here. Quite the spiel you went on off the top there. Rich. I mean, every once in a while, you know, I get <laughs> they just like give me the open airwaves, and I'm like, yeah, let's go. Soliloquy time. Um, JT Miller. Anything I pointed out there that seems wrong to you? I know, like, the trade rumor mill has just gotten out of control on him. I've contributed to it. Pretty much everybody on this station has contributed to it. But it just feels like it's reached a point where it's absolute lunacy to think about trading that player anytime soon. Yeah, I think he's played himself out of the point of being able for somebody to trade for him. Nobody is going to give up that ransom for him. The only thing I wonder, like you talk, we always hear about the Godfather offer. If it ever yep. comes down, none of us really believe that's going to happen, right? Like, do you yeah. think that before the deadline here, we see it happen? Honestly, for me right now, it would have to be two top prospects mm-hmm. plus a first round pick. Yeah, and it's two top prospects. One of them needs to be a right D. That's yep. the other thing too, right? So you look at teams like LA, you look at teams like the Rangers, they have those options. You know, Colorado even has a couple of good right mm-hmm. D in their system as well, but I don't think the deal gets done because a team isn't going to give it up, but I wonder in the final week of the trade deadline as it approaches, do the Canucks talk about retaining ever? And does that make a team say, like, I look at Colorado, and right now Miller's making Mm 5.25. If the Canucks retain even, say, 750000 yeah, that's an exact replacement for Nazem Kadri's $4.5 next year. If you can get to the final week, I think when retaining money comes into the conversation – that godfather offer could be on the table for one of these teams. I just don't see a team, like if it's Colorado, it's like New Hook plus 
Baron's Byram, a right D that they Baron, have though too. Yeah. Hellison, probably not as good a prospect, but an interesting one nonetheless. And your first round pick, which is kind of like nothing at this point, right? It's pretty much you know, if Colorado gets JT Miller, it's probably thirty second overall, <laughs> like let's be honest, right? Yeah. And they don't have a first round pick this year anyhow. So you're not even getting that in the deal, at least not for this upcoming season. Um, it, it's just too hard. If, if it's the Rangers, like you're talking Braden Schneider, does Capo Caco really do it for you at this point? I mean, I know he was a second overall pick, but the shine's really worn off since he was drafted second overall. So is that really enticing me to move off of JT Miller? That would be the kind of offer that it takes to make you think about it at this point, but I don't even want to think about it because of what he means to this team as a player right now, as a leader, and you get to the summer and he doesn't seem all that interested in talking contract or the number just seems like something that's not really all that appealing to the Vancouver Canucks if it does get to a point where it's like, that's a big number to try and handle through your early to mid-30s. I think all of those things are understandable, but for the here and now, especially with how fragile this team has been in the past, how much it affected them to have Tanev and Markstrom leave, I just, I think it would be damaging to the rest of the core on this team to see that kind of a move happen. Like, you trade Tyler Mott, okay, like, you know, all due respect to Tyler Mott, it's a bottom six player, and you understand that there's a business side of it. It's not JT Miller. It's not Brock Bester. It's not one of those big-time players that really move the needle on a night-to-night basis, and especially Miller. So I, I just think that I I would have a really hard time thinking about what happens if you were to make that kind of a move, it has to be such an offer that every player in that room is like, okay, I get it. You know? Yeah. I think that's the thing too, is like you bring up the names like Markstrom and Tanev leaving this team. I would say that it's funny because I feel like the way that Markstrom played in his final season as a Canuck, he probably brought a similar amount of value to wins per, per 82, as we saw with JT Miller doing right now, probably even more like Markstrom was excellent that final year, but the Canucks were able to find a replacement. They found Thatcher Demko, and he has become a replacement for him. So to think that bringing that much from one player in JT Miller, who likely brings a lot of the similar traits that Chris Tanev did. Like, I'm sure that there is a lot of leadership qualities where players love playing with JT Miller. Obviously, we talk about him being the guy who stuck up for them as they were returning from COVID last year. A lot of things in the room. He really drives a lot of things. And I, like, I'm with you. It needs to be a deal where the other team is thinking, Ooh, like, I don't know. Like, yeah. this is worrisome it's for gotta us. It's got to be undeniable. And that's like, wild to think because you're getting a top 10 scorer. Yeah. For the other team to give up that much of a haul and for them to worry about it, it I just I don't see the deal getting done. That's kind of why I bring up the retention on the money. That's yeah. the only way I see a deal getting done is if a team is like, well, you know what? Now we have Miller at 3.5 this year and next year. Like, that's the only way I can see it getting done, and that's how you get a massive haul back. So, per the Athletic, the Canucks are up to 16% chance to make the playoffs. It's still a long way to go. Um, You know, you do the simple math, right? Um, The Canucks need to get 30 points in their final 24 games to get to 94 on the season. 
uh, the Vegas Golden Knights just need to play 500 to get to 94. So as much as oh, Robin Leonard's hurt, this is kind of scary, and all these things, like Vegas can still play 500 even without Robin Leonard. Vegas also happens to have the easiest remaining strength of schedule in the go. NHL this year. It is going to be pretty easy for Vegas to play 500 hockey as they finish out the year here. It's um, it, it, it's that that makes it really hard to think about how the math works because the Canucks still have to play at a points percentage of 625, I think it is, to get to 94, whereas the teams they're trying to catch just have to play at 500. And that's that's difficult. Canucks have to continue to play at a very high level. Even Dallas for that matter, can play at 500, and I think they'll get to 93 points. So as much as they'll miss Miro Heiskanen right now, and who knows what they do with John Klingberg, you know, that's a very tricky situation. But still, they've just got to say to themselves, we play 500, we're probably into the postseason. That's what makes it that much easier for those teams. Dallas has it easy too, man. You look at the way that Dallas's schedule finishes up. They have two against Seattle, one against Arizona, two against the Islanders, like pretty easy to get points in those five games. Not to mention, yeah. you know, some of the other teams that they're playing in Montreal or New Jersey, like they also I think they have the fifth easiest schedule yeah. remaining. So like these teams are the Canucks are trying to catch. The Canucks have an easier they're in the 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 easier half of the rest of their schedule, but there's still a lot of tough games. I mean, you don't have to look any further than what's coming up this weekend. And well, the Canu- like the thing about the Canucks, they do play Vegas three times, so that could theoretically help them. Uh, but they still have to do the job in the rest of their games. Uh, am I so off with the take on Pedersen being the team's best player last night? It's funny because I think last night. Just looking at the way that like the fourth line played, or whatever yeah. you want to call them, are they second line now? I can't, I can't keep up. Uh, yeah. But the Tyler, it's Mott a line. second line. Like I feel like <laughs> Bo Horvat is quite clearly the team's third line center right now. <laughs> yeah, I think seeing what Lamico's line was doing, like they didn't allow a scoring chance against in yeah. nine minutes of five on five hockey. Yeah. They were excellent. I thought Niels Huglander had his best defensive game of his career. Mm-hmm. Like I really thought that Niels Huglander was so engaged, breaking up plays in his own zone, breaking up plays in the neutral zone, a spot where I think yeah. he can actually be more valuable defensively is just his play in the neutral zone. But I thought he was good in his own zone. But overall, like I also do agree with you in the Pedersen, just moving the puck, right? Like, I think creating offense isn't just in the offensive zone. It's creating the opportunity for offense with your play in the neutral zone, your ability to carry the puck out of your own zone mm-hmm. and get yourself into an offensive position. And that's where Pedersen was excellent yesterday. He didn't have the four points, but he set up a lot of times to turn a play that starts in your own zone into a play that ends in the offensive zone. And maybe you don't get a point on that play, but carrying the carrying the puck into the yeah. offensive zone and getting set up, that's half the battle before you can actually get a scoring chance. He is, uh, like, he's so engaged defensively right now, too, especially on the forecheck. You know, the way he was in the offensive zone, just absolutely relentless, trying to win the puck back, uh, and often successful. You know, you, you look at the underlying numbers, and it's easy to see why they were so good for Elias Pettersson. You know, one of the best things about Pettersson when he's really going, he'll make that subtle move maybe at the defensive blue line that faints a defender and opens up a ton of space through the neutral zone where he can hit one of his streaking wingers for an easy zone entry with speed or he takes it himself. You're right. Like These are the things that Pedersen does that make him 
that made him a dominant player that we just haven't seen uh, until now this year. Yeah, and then you see the guys that he's playing with. Like, Garland's creating a lot of space for Pedersen in the offensive zone from the the amount of, like – area that Garland covers in the offensive zone is incredible. And then I think the second best player at maybe doing that in a similar way to Garland and creating space and be able to cycle hard down the boards, take up space, take up time, and open up areas for a guy like Pedersen is Niels Huglander. I think that those two wingers, they're just they're always skating, right? They're always yeah. skating. They're always moving around. They're the perfect guys for an offensive cycle. And the thing that I like about Pedersen, too, is like, you're seeing him battle for space. Like, he is the guy now, like, battling for space in front of the goaltender. Mm-hmm. You didn't see that at the start of the year. First 25 games, Pedersen wasn't battling for space. You know, I don't know if the wrist was the thing hurting him in those games, and maybe yeah. that's why we didn't see it. But the battle level, the compete level, the the drive to find an opening to get his shot off is so much better. And it makes a lot of sense playing with two guys like Huglander and Garland, who... I believe Huglander was the best 5-on-5 offensive creator last year for the Canucks. And I think this year Garland is the number one offensive creator at 5-on-5. And he doesn't really show in the the raw point totals, which is kind of funny. Like, you read the uh, piece with Pierre Lebrun today and Patrick Alvine on The Athletic, and he talks to one executive and says, the executive says, well, Connor Garland's not really producing at the level of his contract Garland's been more than fine for me. And I think maybe if he finds a home as Pedersen's right winger, you know, you'll really start to see that. And I do wonder if at any point the coaching staff trusts Garland in some bigger spots. They absolutely have to. Garland should be getting on your first line with how much offense he creates. He's the number one leader in first assists on this team at 5-on-5. He has more points than JT Miller does at 5-on-5. This is, this is like I, I don't get the, the conversation about Garland being a third line player for you. He's, like he is a top, but that's six the player. way they deploy him. Yeah, you're right, and, and that to me is is one of the things I would question because if he's playing all these minutes, maybe he's putting up the points because it's weaker competition. But if you're if you're literally leading your team in points at five on five, yeah, you should be getting an opportunity in the top six. It's I had this argument about Niels Hoglander last year <laughs> when you're leading the team in points at five on five, you should be in the top six. Well, I think we get to a point. You know, right now, I think Boudreaux's found a good forward mix for this team. I think we do get to a point where their two scoring lines are what we see right now. Miller with Besser and Pearson as his flank, and then Pedersen with, uh, obviously, Hoaglander and Garland. Bo Horvat, sorry, man. Like, <laughs> you, ha- he had an opportunity there, you know, <laughs> to play with Miller and Besser, And it didn't really work out offensively for any of them. So I'm past the argument of Bo needs better wingers. I think Bo's an incredibly solid player, and it almost doesn't matter who he's playing with for you to get what Bo gives you normally at 5-on-5. It doesn't seem to increase if you put him with top players. It doesn't doesn't seem to decrease all that much if you play him with – Pod Colson and even Chase on who, you know, they've generated some chances over the last couple of games with that line too. So I, I think you kind of go right now as it is with those two lines, Pedersen and Miller as your top two scoring lines, and they should be deployed that way. Yeah, I don't I mean, know if it happens. You know, that's why I think a lot of people were wondering about the future of JT Miller, because I think if you are going to invest in Miller to be that guy for a long time, what you just mentioned, Dan, that's what you need to do. That needs yeah. to be your top six center group. Sorry, but Bo Horvat doesn't fit in your top six as a center. 
if you're keeping JT Miller. That is the thing for me where if it, you know, it's going to be a massive contract for JT Miller if he is going to re-sign here in Vancouver. He's likely looking at eight plus. Yeah. I think if you're going to go that direction, you can't pay a winger eight plus. He needs to be a center for you into his 30s. Yeah. I, uh, I don't know if I'd be comfortable going eight plus. Yeah. I think it's totally understandable for Miller to ask for eight plus going into this summer uh, if the Canucks do open up contract negotiations. Couple of texts coming in. Uh, Rager, we're talking about the Canucks needing to be close to perfect and other teams being sub average for the Canucks to make the playoffs. So mortgaging the future on a hope and a prayer. Is it really mortgaging the future if you hold off trading any of these players until the offseason? Yeah, I don't think so. I think, and honestly, like the Canucks don't need to play perfect. Reach, you talked about it in the pregame show yesterday. Yeah, the Canucks just need to skate. When the Canucks skate, they're a better mm-hmm. team than a lot of teams in the NHL, especially under Bruce Boudreau, who seems to be able to get them to skate a lot more. And that showed yesterday. Like it's a much weaker team. And at any point in that game, when you saw the Canucks in the first ten minutes of that game come out and be skating, was there any point in the game you thought they were going to lose? Didn't feel like it. No, because that that's how that's exactly how I felt watching that game. And I was saying, listen. When you are a better roster than the other team and you are skating, the Canucks can do that against a lot of teams in the NHL and be the better team on a night-to-night basis. There's a lot of teams that they can't do it with, right? Like they're not. I'm not saying they're a top-10 team when everybody's on their game, but when the Canucks are on their game, they can beat top-10 teams. You just have to be on your game so much more, and that's why this new coach has really made such a big difference. There's another text I want to get to as well. Okay. On the Dunbar Lumber 650-650 Dunbar, Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, easy schedules aren't a thing. Look at how some of the bottom feeders have been playing lately. Shut up about your 94 point benchmark. <laughs> that first of all, that Texas is quite the roundabout way of hitting three points in a horrible direction, but yeah. easy schedules are a thing. There's a reason why I just said that the Canucks, I was not worried about them losing against Montreal when they played their best game, not even their best game, just skated. If the Canucks skate against the Tampa Bay lightning on Sunday, I don't know if they're going to win. If yeah. they skate tomorrow against the, Capitals, I don't know if they're going to win. They need to be near perfection to get wins in those games. So, yes, obviously the schedule does matter. If you put the Canucks and said, hey, the last, whatever, 24 games you're playing, they're all against the Coyotes. I am betting that the Canucks are going to the playoffs <laughs> if they're playing the Coyotes 24 times to finish this season. So that part of the text is ridiculous. And shut up about the 94-point benchmark. Why? Because that's what it's going to take to get in the playoffs? Why would you want us to shut up about that? It's just the simple math of it all. Exactly. You know, teams like teams right now that are in have to play 500 to get to 94 points. So that's kind of what you are aiming for if you are the Canucks. Maybe even 95 to get there. That's just the reality of the situation with the way teams have kind of um, set themselves up for this final quarter of the season. Now, uh, one last thing I wanted to get to, and uh, we are going to chat with Shayna Goldman coming up after 4.30. But Brock Besser leads the team in power play goals. I don't know why I find that fascinating. (laughs) It's like we talk so much about Brock uh, not scoring enough. Um, He's not the trigger man opposite Pedersen on the power play. And yet here he is as the net front guy just banging in more goals than anybody else it's on weird, the man it's advantage. Weird. Like, he's good at it. Yeah. Like He's pretty good at being the net front guy. Do we just like overthink it that we want to see Brock in the spot that he was in through his rookie year rather than just recognizing 
hey, he actually works where he is most often on the power play. Yeah, because in that rookie year, it was like, who else is going to shoot on the power play? Yeah. Like Thomas Vanek? It took half a season a for Edler. A yeah. <laughs> it took half a season for Edler to figure out how to pass it to Besser, but <laughs> when he did, when he finally figured it out, it started to work. Yeah, and I find it so interesting because you bring it up. Like, how is he leading the team in power play goals? But you can see multiple power plays go by in a row where Brock Besser doesn't touch the puck, right? Because yeah. he can be the guy who's in the net front presence or he can be the guy down low who we saw Tyler Toffoli do an excellent job with JT Miller on just being able to be a passing option. And I don't think the Canucks have explored making Besser be a passing option enough yet. Like, it, he can really bring something to that game. And I think the Canucks don't use behind the net very often on the power play. Mm -hmm. It's very much on top. You see it all the time. It's JT Miller, it's Quinn Hughes, it's Elias Patterson passing the puck around. Yep. You have to create something different. And I know that everybody wanted the Canucks to skate more, especially when Travis Green was the coach. It was like, just get the power play to move. <laughs> something that will make the power play move is getting the puck down low behind the line. Like, behind the end line with Brock Besser, people are going to move to create a, a different passing lane. So it does shock me a little bit to see that he's number one in power play goals. But it's not because of him being like playing bad. Like I really think that he's a skilled player who's quick to get to pucks. He can beat like a you know a slow defensive defenseman when there's a loose puck. Brock Besser has quicker hands to be able to be the first guy to get a shot off before that defenseman can clear it. it it's just a little bit surprising that he's done a great job as net front, but he's not a small guy either. So I, I, yeah, it surprises me a little bit. But the more you think about it, it's, I don't think it's as much as a surprise. Uh, okay, I, I wanted to talk about Abby with you, but we've already run out of time pretty much. Can I give you quick updates? Yes. Okay, Jack Rathbone back tomorrow. Jet Wu was back on Wednesday. They yep. played at 8 in the morning for some reason. Mikey DiPietro was playing so Can we blame so Toronto better. for that? Yes, we absolutely okay. can. It was, it was it. student day, so the kids were supposed to get, <laughs> but because of COVID, none of the kids were able to go. Oh. So they couldn't cancel the game. Flights were already booked. Um, so I'm just going to run through. Mikey DiPietro playing a lot yep. better. Uh, it's been good to see Danila Klimovic find some confidence. He scored an empty netter goal a few weeks ago and has looked excellent since then. Klimovic's defensive game from the start of the year to this point, so much better. Night yeah. and day difference. He's giving much more effort. Uh, and then, man, I tell you about uh, Spencer Martin. It's like a 9.46 save percentage over his last seven games. This guy's got to get to the NHL, and they have to have a look at him this year. Yeah, it looks like uh, – it sounds like it might be one of the options for uh... – backing up Thatcher Demko next year. Follow him on Twitter, Chris Faber 39 Listen to the Canucks conversation and uh, the Canucks warm-up here on the weekends for Sports at 650 and check out his work at Canucks Army. Thanks for this, Faber. Absolutely. My pleasure, Reach. Cheers. There he is. Again, at Chris Faber 39 Coming up, Shana Goldman will join us. Her take on the Hart Trophy race and how the Canucks are having success right now. That's next on Canucks Central. Canuck Central, we are presented by your local Grip Auto Entire. Quality service and friendly advice are waiting for you at gripauto.ca today. The uh, Dunbar Lumber text line is really fired up about the playoff conversation and where the Canucks currently stand. Now, they've done wonders to get themselves back in the race. The more they win the more the conversation becomes a reality. And look, playing at a uh, 625 points percentage for the rest of the year is not that crazy. But to think about 
how they've had to play to get to this point and still have to play at a 625 points percentage. That's just how big of a hole they were dug into to start this year. Now, it's become a lot more doable. And I like this text from Trucker James. Um, You could talk about Vegas. Three games left against Vegas if the Canucks beat them and then at least equal what Vegas does the rest of the way, they could be in and Vegas out. So Trucker James is taking the glass-half-full approach to the Canucks' hope for the playoffs. Let's uh, bring in our next guest. It is Shayna Goldman, Sportsnet and The Athletic. Thanks for this, uh, Shayna. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, thanks for making time. Uh, Canucks fans are... Uh, they're they're believing the playoffs are 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 possible. I mean, it's it's kind of crazy how well they've played to get to even it even being a conversation, but it's uh it's kind of happened and uh, it's all happened under Bruce Boudreaux. What do you make of uh, the streaking Canucks? I think that they are very lucky to have an excellent goaltender in Thatcher Demko. He's been absolutely outstanding and, you know, sometimes that's all that's all it takes is a goaltender going on a run, but he's had more support. Um there are room, you know, there's a lot of room for improvement. I think special teams is one area, especially the penalty kill. Um, but, yeah, you can see a huge turnaround. It it shows, you know, a change of voice can have such an influence on a team, and it seems to really have had one here for the Canucks. So it's, it's exciting for them that, you know, things are turning in the right direction now. I know the uh, Hart Trophy conversation uh, has been uh, wild on Twitter lately, uh, and I know you were on with Jeff Merrick the other day talking about it as well on uh, on the Sportsnet Radio Network. You did write about J.T. Miller recently, and he's not in that Hart Trophy conversation, but his season is fascinating. I mean, he's been one of the top scorers in the league. Um, I, I don't know if any of us really expected this out of JT Miller. When you when you see him as a player and what he brings to a team, uh, are you surprised that he has become the Canucks' best forward? Um, I'm not surprised that he's playing at such a high level. I'm more surprised that he would be the Canucks' best forward just when you have Elias Pettersson right there. He is the player I would expect that to be, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, it's really not a knock to Miller. He has a lot of skill. It's just a matter of, you know, putting it together, playing at a high level consistently, uh, consistently and being surrounded by good supporting players as well. You know, he's had highs throughout his career in New York. He has in Tampa. So, you know, to see that he's having this sort of season in Vancouver, it's great for him to be reaching these new heights. And, you know, at a great time, too, because there's a, a ton of interest around the league for him, whether, you know, that interest sends him elsewhere or he just ups his value that the Canucks want to retain him. Yeah, and it might uh, might be a pretty big contract should they uh, go through that conversation with J.T. Miller in the summer. Over at The Athletic, you wrote about who could be uh, some options at the deadline that are similar to, uh, you know, Blake Coleman and Barkley Goudreau. Everybody's looking for their Blake Coleman and Barkley Goudreau like the Tampa Bay Lightning found a couple of years ago. And you do write about Tyler Mott. Uh, what... Uh, would Tyler Mott potentially bring to a contender? So I think the most important thing to highlight here is that the Tampa Bay Lightning won because they were loaded with star talent. And I know that sometimes gets lost because, you know, we get excited talking about that third line, which was a huge part of their playoff run. 
but they still were so stacked that they were able to have that as their third line while on other teams that could have been, you know, a first or second line. So that's the one thing contenders have to be careful with, you know, not thinking that's the missing piece. You have to have the foundation around it first. But Tyler Mott's an interesting player because, you know, he doesn't have a super high cap hit. So it's something that contenders should be able to afford. And, you know, he's he's strong in his own end. Um, he can retrieve pucks. He can help move it up the ice, even if he's not doing it with control, which from you know, a third or fourth liner, you don't always expect the perfect possession plays. You just need a player who can chip it up the ice and then battle around the boards. And uh, something that I think is super interesting with him is his penalty killing ability. You know, he can really disrupt play. He has, you know, he's a speedy skater and he knows how to, you know, get in the heads of players on the power play and just try to drive play up the ice the opposite way. So, you know, I think he's, one of the cheaper options possibly compared to say the Connor Browns that are a little bit less attainable or even, you know, it's possible Andrew Kopp because he has, you know, the scoring to go with it. But I think Mott could be a really good, you know, uh, an interesting option for a team that wants to bolster their third line and has some other pieces in place to try to make their own version of that Coleman line. Is it, is it difficult to find good penalty killers around the league? It depends. It, it it really, it takes, you know, the coaches to buy into that strategy that you can have a two-way impact on the penalty kill, that you're not just going into a defensive shell. And, you know, it takes coaches trusting more offensively inclined players to, to, to be deployed in that situation. And obviously they can control it in some ways. You know, you can make sure that they're on with stronger defensive pairs or you can use them on the fly. So they're going on while a power play is a little bit more tired or it's against their second unit. So they can hop on with fresh legs and start disrupting plays. But, you know, defensive structure is something you can teach. Offensive skills a little bit harder to, you know, to come by. So it's interesting when you see coaches trust different players to play in those situations. And it can just be a matter of them knowing power play systems and, you know, they have a better anticipation of what a team's going to try because of that. So, it shouldn't be that hard to find penalty killers, but you, I think it's a matter of breaking past what we think of when we think of defensive play. You know, someone who has a ton of shot blocks, yes, they might be doing the right thing, but they also might be doing it because it's reactionary. Maybe it means that they don't have the puck and they're constantly diving in front of it. They're not regaining possession necessarily if they're still having to, you know, go back out for consecutive blocks instead of making that takeaway or pushing it out of the zone or, you know, even just blocking a pass in closing lanes and making everybody stay kind of still because there's nowhere to go with the puck. Shana Goldman, our guest, you know, one other player uh, you, you wrote about in this piece over at the athletic and and a player i think uh the canucks maybe should be looking at as as a target over the course of the summer not so much at the trade deadline because they shouldn't be buyers with the position they're in but colin blackwell out of the seattle kraken uh what intrigues you about colin blackwell who i think most people are like who when when they hear the name colin blackwell yeah, he's a he's definitely an under the radar pick and maybe this is a little bit of my bias picking him because I watched him play in New York for a full season before that and you know, I learned a lot about him when the Rangers first acquired him. But this was a player that was, you know, he was a solid player in Nashville. He could play center or wing. He didn't get that much playing opportunity there and then he went to the Rangers and while he started in the bottom six, he eventually made his way to that second line as a replacement for Jesper Fast alongside 
Artemi Panarin and Ryan Strom. And what's interesting to me is seeing, especially when you compare it to the Rangers this year, because they have tried to find a player to replace him, it's not that easy to find a defensive player who can keep up with top offensive talents, not slow them down and actually compliment them. And he did that through much of the year. So, you know, he brought that into Seattle. And now that he's with the Kraken, He's showing the defensive side of his game even more than he did in New York. He has these great defensive impacts. He's playing really well alongside Yanni Gord. Their shorthanded goal the other night was a great example of what they can both do. And so if you're looking to replicate the the line that featured Yanni Gord, why not look at the player who's playing alongside him right now at even strength and on the penalty kill? And of some of the picks, you know, he has one of the lower salaries. He probably would take a lower pick to acquire and it wouldn't take much, you know, maneuvering to make that cap hit work. So I think he's someone that more contenders should be looking at because he's very quietly effective in his role and you can put him anywhere in your lineup. That's the, you know, one of the best things about him. He's a utility forward. So I just think that there's a lot of potential there. It's uh, it's a really fascinating conversation. And, and you know, we, we talk about speedy players and how much of an impact they can have. Uh, it's definitely a conversation in Vancouver. Like how do they get more team speed? Is it about having faster players or how much is it about getting the team as a whole to play faster? Because there is, there is a difference. Can you be fast, but also play fast? Does it have to be a combination of both? How much of playing fast goes into coaching versus, you know, the individual traits of certain players on a roster? Well, you definitely have to have some foot speed. But in today's NHL, there's so many good skaters that, you know, it really shouldn't be that hard to find someone that can keep up. But, yeah, it's a coaching decision, too. Like, you know, the decision could be you want quick passes. It could be that you want to generate offense on the rush as possible and you want, you know, your offense to be a track meet. There's so many stylistic decisions that you can try to employ. You look at a team like, you know, Vegas, everybody knows that they can generate offense on the rush and we think of their up-tempo game. Or even Colorado, this is a team that, you know, plays so fast and aggressively. Same with the Carolina Hurricanes. Um, the best teams can play with speed and also know how to slow it down. I think Vegas last year in the playoffs really showed that well when they went up against Colorado because they could keep up with that up-tempo game and they knew how to slow Colorado down and make it that it was impossible to get through the neutral zone. So it's a little bit of both. But, yeah, you obviously have to have players who can move and can skate. Otherwise, you know, they're going to be dragging you down and you're going to be having to make up for their deficiencies in their own zone. It's um it's Shana Goldman, our guest here. Uh, I wanted to touch on some of the uh, awards conversations, uh, similar to what you did with with Jeff Merrick the other day. But you know, one player when I when I think about the Norris Trophy, uh, of course, Kale McCarr is kind of running away with things with the season that he's having, especially offensively. But I I kind of wonder your take on a player like Miro Heiskanen. Now I know he's he's injured and in it's mononucleosis right now, so may not play for a while. But I feel like that's a player that has kind of gotten lost in the conversation around who are the best defensemen in the league just because he doesn't put up the same kind of point totals that a Makar or an Ekblad or one of those players does. Do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Like sometimes it feels like with the Norris conversation, it's who is the best defensively of the top scorers. You know, which you need to have a little bit more than that. And, you know, Miro Heiskanen is one of the best defensive defenders in the league this year. He has 
you know, one of the be- of of top pair defenders. Sorry, but you know, he he has really strong defensive impact, so that is step one. Obviously, it would help if he had a better offensive team around him, and the Stars are a bit of a one line team, so that does hurt his case a bit. But you know, he he has a good influence on his team's expected goal generation for. So, you know, they're creating quality chances while he's on the ice. Um, He's good at holding the blue line and stopping opponents from getting past him or creating scoring chances when they do. Um, He can drive play up the ice the opposite direction as well. So there's a lot of great things about him. And then you look at his usage, you know, he's trusted to go against top competition. He's trusted to be played in key situations of a game, whether, you know, it's a close tie or, Um, if they're defending a one-goal lead. So for all of those reasons, it seems like he checks off every box that you could want for your best all-around defenseman. And that's the key. It's the best all-around defenseman, two-way play. So he has a little bit of both. Obviously, if he had, you know, higher scoring totals, it would help his case even more. But he should be in the conversation, though there are other two-way defensemen that rank ahead of him this year. And that's where you see, like, the Victor Hedmans of it come in and Devin Taves and Charlie McAvoy as well. You know, I've uh, we talk so highly of, of Quinn Hughes uh, here in this market. I think he's really taken a step on the defensive side of his game this year. Uh, it's not yet in the, the Norris conversation, I don't think, but it does feel like Quinn Hughes has gotten back to being, you know, among those that would be considered among the top defensemen in the league again. Definitely. And so we ran a model that um, looked through more traditional metrics, and it did have a couple analytical notes sprinkled in but for the most part you know it went through time on ice and points and things like that that you would have in the traditional conversation and he did rate out in the top 10 like granted this was you know a week or two ago but he did rate out in the top 10 in defenseman right there so that does tell you something you know by more traditional marks he's definitely closer to it and when we expand you know our more data driven approach to it he wasn't that far out but yeah, it's gonna. It'll take him, I think, a little bit more time. And obviously, the team struggles this year to play into it. But it wouldn't surprise me if he's in the race, you know, in the near future. So uh, before we let you go, I mean, we've we've had so many discussions about the Hart Trophy. Uh, I don't need to. We, I don't think we need to have the Jonathan Huberdeau debate here <laughs> on the show. But um, is Austin Matthews just uh, putting out a case that's uh, that's that's too hard to turn down? Uh, other than maybe what Igor Shosturkin is doing. Those are the two leading the way. The biggest thing for me is that when you look at Matthews, you look at Shesterkin, you're going to have to think for a minute before you would say who is the second most valuable player on those teams. You know, um, for New York, there's a couple names, but there's such a gap in the val- in, uh, value between Shesterkin and anybody else. And the same goes for Matthews in Toronto. Yes, he plays with Mitch Marner. Yes, you know, Nylander's there. And there are talented players. When you look at the Calgary Flames, you could try to make the case for Lindholm you could be making the case for Goudreau you could be making the case for Kachuk so all three of them play together so for me I have a little bit you know a bigger problem putting all three in the conversation than if all three technically would belong there um but Austin Matthews is far and away the most viable player on his team Igor Shesterkin is far and away the most viable player on his team if you know the two of them aren't in the lineup for their respective clubs the results are going to be a lot different especially with Shesterkin the conversation I've heard recently is turning to games played and what Chesterkin would have to play for it to be equivalent. And, you know, this is someone who's on the ice for 60 minutes, too. So even if he doesn't play a full 82-game season and hits the 60, you know, 60 or 62 start mark, like, I think that should be enough, especially in today's NHL, 
when tandem goalies are on the rise above anything else, you don't have goalies starting 70 games anymore. But um, I'm intrigued to see where the race goes, especially with the two of them, if anybody else can, you know, step up in it as well. But I think they're the ones that are pushing their teams to maintain their playoff standing right now when there are struggles elsewhere on both teams that you can see coming up. Shayna, uh, love this conversation. Thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Uh, there is Shayna Goldman of Sportsnet and The Athletic. A lot of uh, really good thoughts there from Shayna and really interesting on Quinn Hughes in that some of their models, statistical models that they ran through with more traditional metrics had Quinn Hughes as a top 10 defenseman in the league for this season. I know we get caught up in JT Miller. I know we get caught up in how good Thatcher Demko is. But man, Quinn Hughes has had a really, really good season and is back to being a top defenseman in the league. I don't know how often he's won the belt, though. JT Miller won the belt last night. Josh, do you, do you like the belt? I'm a big, well, I don't know if I like the belt itself, but I like that they have something like the belt. <laughs> I'm just not, not a wrestling guy. I'm not a wrestling guy. Oh, come so that's why. on. Oh, sorry. I wasn't. It, it's before my time, I think. The I think, wrestling peak was pre-1998. I honestly think uh, JT Miller should just keep the belt. Anytime somebody makes a uh, horrible mistake, like if Brock Besser makes another pass out into the slot to Austin Matthews, uh, he should get power bombed by JT Miller. Do you that, know? That's you, a move? Yes. Okay. Ah, wow. I assume it. it <laughs> does its damage. Uh, so Josh, not a big fan of the uh, the belt. But um, as much as JT Miller has uh, kind of stolen the conversation, uh, have we forgotten how good Quinn Hughes is, Josh? I think, I think we have. I do also think that's kind of going to be the story of his career, in a way. Like it, maybe, maybe in his absolute prime, he's just so undeniably talented that. We have to kind of put him on the forefront. But realistically, let's say Elias Pettersson continues to progress the way we thought he would before the start to this season. And obviously, he's gotten back to what he was before. Uh, Thatcher Demko, he's always going to be here. And those two guys are always going to take the headlines. Mm -hmm. Quinn Hughes, yes, he's going to get a lot of points. He's going to be great on the power play. But he's never going to be uh, a prolific goal scorer like Pettersson might be. Or somebody that is just... He he's always going to be smooth, but he's never going to be super flashy. He's never going to be Kale McCarr, but he's he's always going to be under underrated in a way. And I think we're kind of losing him in this season, yeah. but he's still putting up amazing numbers and doing what he's done throughout his career. So uh, I know uh, you for a long time have been shouting from the top of Grouse Mountain that Elias Pettersson should be on the penalty kill. Yes, last night. Uh, he was, in the moments he did have on the penalty kill, it was incredible seeing how much ground he would cover, how relentless he was in his puck pressure, and you have been on the put PD on the PK train going back to last season, I think. I was made fun of so much for that. <laughs> yeah, no. But, and, and the reason is because I looked at uh, a few other teams, namely Carolina, Florida, and they put their star players, yep. whether they be uh, younger players like Sebastian Anaho in Carolina, and they put their star players on the penalty kill. They had a lot of success, 
and they didn't really get injured that much. And that that was kind of people's concern with putting Pedersen on the penalty kill is, oh, he's going to block a bunch of shots and he's going to get injured and it's dumb to put him on the PK. But realistically, and you mentioned it, he covers so much ground that there's different ways of penalty killing than just doing what Chris Tanev did and blocking shots. And that's still really good, but you're going to get injured that way. Whereas Pedersen is just, he's always been good defensively just because of positioning. And on the penalty kill, that's so important, and that's why he's had so much success lately. Uh, well, if you look at Tanev this year, he blocks far fewer shots than he ever did in Vancouver. And, hey, he stayed healthy uh, in Calgary. Maybe maybe there's a correlation there uh, for Chris Tanev. That's producer Josh Elliott Wolf. It's Dan Richo coming up. Greg Wyshynski is going to join us. His take on uh, the Canucks' rise through the standings what they should be doing ahead of the trade deadline, and more. That's next for Hour 2 of Canuck Central.